Welcome to How I Wrote This, a show about writers, their books, and the story behind their stories. I'm your host, Pamela Hensley, and in season two, I travel to Berlin. Learn what it's like growing up in a divided city, fleeing the country, living here as a Jewish expat. Join me as I speak to winners and contenders of the German Book Prize, the Thomas Mann Prize, the Dublin Literary Award, and the International Booker. Season two of How I Wrote This begins on April 23rd. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A warning before we begin. This series discusses residential schools, medical racism, segregated healthcare, and missing patients. Support is available to residential school survivors and intergenerational survivors through the National Indian Residential School Crisis Line. The Hope for Wellness Helpline also offers mental health and crisis support over the phone or online. Contact information is available in the show notes. This is the story of a national crime. Before we jump into this episode, let's talk about the end of the Indian hospital system. Most federally funded Indian hospitals were open in the 1940s and early 1950s, and most closed by 1981. Throughout the era of Indian hospitals, Indigenous communities advocated for the expansion of health services because the facilities were not adequate or easily accessible. However, the federal government slowly left the hospital business because the need for tuberculosis treatment decreased. In the 1960s, the federal government started to train and employ Indigenous staff in health and sanitation roles in the hospitals and in communities. The government also began to phase out the policy of segregated hospitalization. Community hospitals were expected to treat Indigenous patients. However, federal and provincial governments argued over who was responsible for paying for Indigenous health care. Municipal hospitals also complained that white patients would be uncomfortable with integration and that Indigenous patients placed a strain on their budgets. Indigenous communities knew they would face discrimination in municipal hospitals and wanted community hospitals exclusively for their use. In 1968, the federal government released the Health Plan for Indians. Indian health services reduced health services and restricted financial assistance to only those who had no means to pay for care. National and provincial Indigenous groups rejected the plan, and treaty nations asserted that paying healthcare premiums would violate their treaty rights. The following year, the federal government proposed the policy commonly known as the White Paper, intended to abolish the Indian Act and do away with related rights, treaties, and responsibilities. The White Paper was withdrawn in 1971 due to widespread organized opposition, but the health plan for Indians was kept in place until 1979. Throughout that decade, Indigenous communities and organizations advocated for participation in decision-making and better healthcare services based on their treaty rights, which resulted in a new health policy. By the late 1980s, the federal government focused on on on-reserve nursing stations and transferring health services delivery to First Nations. The system was less centralized, but many patients still needed to travel for care, 
and critics considered health transfers an offloading of responsibilities. The federal government also continued to contest the treaty right to health care. In this final episode, we talk to people and organizations helping survivors and families find out what happened in sanatoria and segregated hospitals in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. They describe barriers to accessing records and how knowing what happened and sharing experiences contribute to survivors' healing. We also look at the ongoing inadequacies in healthcare for Indigenous peoples in Canada. I'm not a scholar of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which short form is UNDRIP. But the right to know is enshrined in UNDRIP, and it's also enshrined in the United Nations Joinette or Rentlicher principles. This is Erin Millions from the Manitoba Indigenous Tuberculosis History Project. And the right to know means that Indigenous peoples have a right to know their history. They have a right to transmit that history. and the right to access the documents about their history. Canada is a signatory to UNDRIP, which means it has agreed to put UNDRIP principles into action. UNDRIP and the Joinette or Rentlicher principles are also enshrined in the 2015 Truth and Reconciliation Calls to Action. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission's Call to Action 69 states, we call upon Library and Archives Canada to fully adopt and implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and the United Nations Joinette or Entlicher Principles as related to Indigenous Peoples' inalienable right to know the truth about what happened and why. So what the call to action is saying is that archives in Canada need to allow for Indigenous access to Indigenous records about their own histories. In general, policies around restrictions on records are interpreted narrowly to prevent access to records rather than to allow access to records. Aaron's colleague, Anne Lindsay, has encountered many of these barriers. The first thing to understand about the privacy restrictions is that they contribute to the complexity of the research just in how uneven they are. Different uh, levels of government and different kinds of functions within the services that would have made up most patient experiences. For instance, if a person has passed away, then the family may be able to access records 20 years after their death, 70 years after their death, or never. It really depends on which archives you're approaching. There are other complications as well if we talk about after death because you may need to find a record and access that record to be able to show that the person has passed away. Even if you manage to get access to restricted records, what you can do with them is very restricted. So you may know answers that you're not able to share. Anne also shared that private records may fall under restrictions requiring the record holder to seek a legal opinion before releasing a record to a family member. If we think about the ages of the people that we are often dealing with, these are delays that can be the equivalent of denying access. I can't emphasize enough how much the privacy regulations right now make an already difficult situation even more difficult for both researchers who want to do sort of larger overarching 
research, but also for families and communities who would like to be able to get some answers, to bring this information back into their own information and memory systems. Having these answers is part of people seeking healthy lives and healthy outcomes. We also talked to Angie Morasti and Sheldon Krasowski about similar work at the Office of the Treaty Commissioner, Saskatchewan. My name is Angie Morasti, originally from northern Saskatchewan in Pelican Arrows, part of the Peter Ballantyne Cree Nation. I speak Woodland Cree fluently, and I'm currently the Executive Director of the Office of the Treaty Commissioner of Saskatchewan. My name is Sheldon Krasowski. I'm the Director of Research for the Office of the Treaty Commissioner in Saskatoon. I was born in Saskatoon, which is Treaty 6 territory. I am non-Indigenous. My grandparents came to Saskatchewan in the 1930s to farm. You know, my own experience, um, I'll share a little bit with you. My late father was in two sanatoriums. One was in Prince Albert and one was at Fort San. Last fall, when Sheldon and I met with the archives in Regina, I started asking questions about how I can access my own father's records because he passed when I was little and I wanted to know more history about my own father about when he was in these sanatoriums, what years, how old was he? Just something for me to have more of a connection to my own father. Even starting that process was difficult. It was a form that I was sent. I've since filled it out. And they're asking a bunch of questions that I don't even know about because I was too young. I have to go to my elderly aunts and uncles to try and get some information about my father, their brother. It's quite the journey, even phoning up, uh, say, funeral homes who may have had his obituary. We come from northern Saskatchewan. Many of us were born up in that area or in the bordering town of Flin Flon, Manitoba, where there was a hospital. And so a lot of our records are also in the Paw of the Archdiocese there. So my father's baptismal record would probably be there. The Office of the Treaty Commissioner mediates discussions about treaty implementation and promotes treaty education in Saskatchewan. Residential schools were one of the first violations of treaty, and because of that, we focused a lot of our effort regarding education on residential school history. We've ramped that up with the discovery of unmarked graves, and we're working with four different First Nations communities and four different residential schools to complete both oral history and archival research. Even a cursory look at those records shows that many of the children died from tuberculosis at the different sanatoriums. To better understand the connection between deaths in residential schools and tuberculosis, the Office of the Treaty Commissioner contacted the Provincial Archives of Saskatchewan. When Sheldon and I met with the archives last fall, and they mentioned HIPAA, which is the Health Information Privacy Act. I started thinking, are they going to redact information once I gather my documents or once I am able to get the archival information that I needed for my father? Because if that does happen, and if I do get those records and there's information redacted, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just, it's going to be very upsetting. I don't think they have a right to redact information, especially when it's going to an immediate family member. I believe that every single person has a right to their own family's history. When you think about the residential schools, when you think about the 60s scoop, when you think about people being removed from their communities and having lost that connection, having access to records will make that connection a bit better, stronger. They'll be able to find 
probably more family members from those records. There is so much good that can come from families accessing their own family's history and archival records. Erin Millions explains the complexities of the situation in Manitoba. It's very difficult to access information about patient experiences in the hospitals because the hospitals here were administered by the Sanatorium Board of Manitoba and not directly by the federal government. The records about the hospitals that were run by the San Board are under privacy restrictions for health information at the provincial level. That means in Manitoba, historical health records never become unrestricted. Patient files from, you know, Ninet in 1913 are treated the same way as my records in my doctor's office right now. The other hospitals across Canada that were run directly by Indian Health Services Those records are in the Department of Indian Affairs files at Library and Archives Canada, and they become unrestricted 20 years after somebody's death. This is Miranda Jimmy. One of the most challenging parts of doing Indian hospital research and and collecting the documentation is that it's medical information. So many of the records were destroyed um, or transferred in different ways or exist in public archives or private archives. One of the first places that I started to look for information was in the public records related to residential school. In the government records related to residential school, um, quarterly reports had to be filed by each school, um, and that would allow for the payment uh, from the federal government to the schools. Library and Archives Canada has digitized many of these records. They're available online. On those quarterly reports, um, there's a note section. And in the note section, you'll often see transferred to so-and-so. Deaths are also put in the notes. One or two words noting to what happened to that, that student. I know directly from family members that they know that their family member died in a particular year, but they show up in the reports for two or three years after, which meant that the school was getting funding for that student. So the other thing that that exists is photographs, and the photographs exist in a lot of different places. Most of them are in private collections. Think about that box in a basement and someone forgets that it's there or it's going to be discovered when someone passes away or someone's downsizing. Archives are also not easy to navigate. So most of the records related to the Charles Camsell and the Indian hospital system in general live within the, the walls and confinements of Library and Archives Canada. That is a fortress that privileges those who know how to navigate the system, have academic precedence in navigating the system, and isn't intended for people like me or survivors of these systems. Miranda also shared what still needs to be done. The piece that's really missing that I think has the most significance and I don't have the capacity to follow up on in an informed, practical, systematic way is the collection of those oral histories. So that's the living knowledge, the memories, the lived experiences from those who were there, documented in their own words, in the ways that they want to share today, so that future people can understand when they're no longer here what happened. Each passing day takes away the opportunity for that to happen. We've heard this several times. Some survivors want to share their truths and histories, but there isn't funding or capacity to create an archive.
The Manitoba Indigenous Tuberculosis History Project shared an example of assisting a family with their search. Here's Erin Millions. So as Dr. Lindsay was working on her research about burials related to sanatoriums and Indian hospitals in Manitoba, it became evident that there was connections between patients who had died at Brandon Indian Sanatorium and the cemetery at Sioux Valley First Nation. We contacted Sioux Valley First Nation to let them know they were already working on their own process to map those graves and figure out the names that were associated with the graves as best they can. There are approximately 50 graves of sanatorium patients. The list is available on the project's website. Dr. Lindsay recognized a woman's name, and her name was Doreen Day. And Doreen is the mother of Saul Day. Saul is a residential school survivor, and he was a patient at the Fort William Sanatorium in northwestern Ontario. Saul has written and spoke about publicly before not knowing where his mother is buried. His mom had gone to Brandon Indian Sanatorium when he was very young. We let him know that we figured out where his mother was buried. Saul Day was happy to receive this news. In May, Saul and his family came out to Sioux Valley, Dakota Nation to visit his mother's burial site. The family was hosted by Sioux Valley, Dakota Nation. They had a feast, they gave them a tour, and it was just a wonderful experience all around. And APTN also went along to sort of document this process. He says no child should ever have to live without their mother. Living without a mother is so devastating. It's not good for any young person. I'm 76 years old today. To feel that reserve, uh, closure, my inner child is wild now. We're honored to have been involved in helping to make that happen. What has come out of it is that Sioux Valley has put together a committee that will work with families who are coming to visit their missing loved ones at the Sioux Valley Cemetery to welcome them into the community, provide them with support. The project launched the Missing Patients Initiative Research Guide on June 21st to help with similar searches. Anne elaborates. We wanted to create a resource that families and communities could use to locate their own uh, information and that we could put information out generally to the public but also to some of the archives that might not even know that they hold this kind of information. So we set about to create a guide. Through research, we've identified the most common places that you would want to look for information and the most common places where people might have been buried, as well as a bit of information about the steps, because sometimes you need information from one source to be able to access information from another source. We will also be working on something that can be like a print source to bridge the digital divide for some people, especially if you don't live in an urban center. We think back to Saul Day's story and the impact that finding out what had happened with his mom has on him. We also have to remember that he's in his 70s and a number of siblings have already passed away. I think we need to take a serious look at the parts of the system from the past that we may be replicating today. 
it is part of health to be able to find out what has happened. The project's website also hosts an online tuberculosis database, a photo database, as well as historical documents, articles, and multimedia resources on Indigenous tuberculosis histories in Manitoba and Canada. Miranda Jimmy works with survivors of the Charles Campbell Indian Hospital in Alberta. She has learned a lot about the healing process. I think survivors are motivated by two very specific wants and needs. One is just someone to listen and validate what they have to say. They have been forced to keep these stories inside to build up um, their own kind of disregard for their experiences and put aside how they feel about medical care or um, how they were treated, how it's affected or impacted the rest of their life because they just need to survive. And it is about self-preservation. Oftentimes they don't want anything more than that than just someone to listen who doesn't question, doesn't challenge, and comes from a place of understanding. When I can say to a former patient, I've heard that same story from someone else, you can see the relief on their face. And that validation is so incredibly important and healing. The second thing is they want to be able to know for fact that what happened to them and what they remember is true. How can that be complemented by black and white documents? And sometimes it's a photograph, sometimes it's a search. For people to be able to see that on a screen or on a printed paper, again, comes with such a sense of relief. Witnessing people's experiences and providing printed evidence is a healing practice. Well, and I think for maybe non-Indigenous people or, or those who are professionally trained in providing medical services, no one thinks about that as a healing practice. For me, without any training, without any paperwork to say that I provide medical support, I do. Healing comes in a variety of ways and comes through a variety of practices. The Office of the Treaty Commission of Saskatchewan will soon offer some supports for survivors and families. Here's Sheldon and Angie. We became involved with Lung SAS and the University of Saskatchewan regarding information sharing of TB records. Due to frustration with our search at the Provincial Archives of Saskatchewan, when we reached out to the Provincial Archives of Saskatchewan regarding their TB records, we were told that no one had looked at them for years and years and years, and they needed to do a complete re-evaluation of those records. Finally, we were able to view the records, but mostly what we were able to access was redacted, and a lot of the collection we were unable to access. Around that same time, LungSask reached out to us and let us know that they were also curating their records of Indigenous people's experience at the TV Sanatoria, especially Fort San uh, at Capel. It was hoped that we would be able to um, assist them with uh, scanning, compiling, and put them, putting them all in a database. It would be um, accessible both on site at the Treaty Commissioner's office and online. We do have a reading room and we do have um, archival uh, assistants and staff to help people who aren't that internet savvy or who just need a little bit of help to find those records for individuals who they may be looking for. 
If the Office of the Treaty Commissioner can make it easier for any First Nations person looking for any kind of a record of their loved ones, whether it be in the sanatoriums or the residential schools, then we are here to help. OTC is also working with Lung Saskatchewan. My name is Erin Kwan, and I'm the president and CEO for Lung Saskatchewan. Our predecessor organization was the Saskatchewan Anti-Tuberculosis League. And the Saskatchewan Anti-Tuberculosis League was formed to actually help in the fight against tuberculosis. We work with everything lung-related, uh, so that includes uh, advocacy, education, health promotion, and support to patients and caregivers. The Saskatchewan Anti-Tuberculosis League operated three sanatoriums in Saskatoon, Prince Albert, and Fort Capel. Aaron described some issues in tuberculosis care in Saskatchewan in the second half of the 20th century. A lot of the information that we have found shows jurisdictional issues between the provincial and federal governing bodies regarding payment for First Nations patients at sanatoria. In July 1965, the League assumed full responsibility from the federal government for the treatment of tuberculosis in First Nations patients. Until the year 1975, First Nations patients were treated in the League sanatoria. After 1975, the government required all children and, as they were known, registered Indians with tuberculosis to be admitted to Indian hospitals that were actually operated by the federal government. Later on, further restrictions were created by the feds where First Nations patients were not allowed to be treated for more than 10 days at the sanatoria. Now, Lung Sask is motivated to share archival documents. Much of the historical information um, we have, uh, we, we hope or we believe could help individuals that are, that are looking for information about a loved one's past. Right now, we're working with the Office of the Treaty Commissioner in Saskatchewan, File Hills Capel Tribal Council, and of course, the University of Saskatchewan to create a, a database of sorts with all the historical pieces that we have, such as photos and newsletters and things like that. We don't have patient records. Uh, those were turned over to the province back in the 80s, but what we do have is, is just pieces of, of history that may be of value to someone. You know, we have um, lots of photos and we have copies of the Valley Echo, which was the newsletter that described the comings and goings of, of life at the sanatoria. We still have information from the sanatoria, including um, letters of correspondence, much of it surrounding jurisdictional care and responsibility for patients. Uh, we had one woman come in a few years ago that um, found a photo of herself as a child, and that was the only photo she had ever seen of herself as a child. So you can imagine that that gives her some peace of mind or, or at least helps her start to link the pieces of her journey together. The National Center for Truth and Reconciliation also has several efforts underway. Kayla Johnson shares more. We're focusing on four deliverables. Number one, developing the Missing Children database to integrate information at unmarked burials so that we can have that link between children listed and their final resting place. This also includes GIS mapping to feature the show of relationships between these communities, schools, and facilities. Our second deliverable is to build a register of marked and unmarked burial sites related to residential schools, and then engaging with communities. The third is developing a network of experts across the country who can work alongside or under the direction of communities throughout the project, this country has a tough lesson to learn as the accounts from survivors regarding unmarked burials went unacknowledged for many decades until proof was presented. 
This underscores the need for survivors and communities to be leading the work rather than being seen as subjects for these investigations. Now the fourth piece here is offering a central repository for communities to access digital storage and guidance if requested for the files that they bring and a space to share that information. And it also sets up partnerships between the center and the communities who wish to have their research data preserved at the center. The center is also providing access to its larger offline archival collection to communities searching for records of children who went missing or died, or communities looking for information on potential burial sites. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There are clear continuities between historical healthcare and current care available to Indigenous peoples. Here's Paul Hackett. I think students need to understand just how big of an issue this is. Part of that is going to be the mortality that was associated with and the suffering that people went through, but also how it's seen within First Nations communities, how important it was, how much of a stigma that was attached to it, how much guilt was attached to it, how it continues to be an issue that hasn't gone away. A number of studies have found that the current experiences of tuberculosis in communities are being interpreted through past experiences. Studies show that fears about being sent away from community remain present in Indigenous people's conceptualizations of not only tuberculosis, but other illnesses. Studies amongst contemporary TB patients point that the legacy of these colonial systems of the sanatorium era contributed to their delays in seeking treatment and diagnosis and a really a general apprehension about health care. Research in Montreal reported very similar findings on the impact of negative memories and the experiences rooted in colonial treatment as being a significant piece to the mistrust Indigenous peoples have expressed towards our contemporary healthcare system. For many former patients, their removal distanced them not only physically, but also culturally and spiritually from their community. Even if they did return, many felt that they were unwelcome strangers, so they returned back to urban settings. 
So when it comes to our current healthcare in Canada, creating culturally appropriate and effective intervention strategies requires us to understand this history and understand how contact and colonization has impacted Indigenous history and culture and influence how communities react to illness or intervention today. There's a sense that tuberculosis is an, an ancient disease in Canada, that we're one of the, the most developed countries in the world and therefore TB doesn't occur here. In fact, it does. And again, it goes back to social deprivation and economic inequities. We just hide it. It's located in areas that where newcomers uh, live or it's located in a northern reserve. We can go about our business and say TB not an issue in Canada. We're just a healthy nation. TB never went away as Canadians today, as non-Indigenous people in Canada today. We need to become better informed, to inform our children. We as a society and we as individuals need to acknowledge why it occurred in the past, the suffering that occurred, and the failure of Canada, for many reasons, to act in an appropriate way. This is not a political issue, it's a Canadian issue. We need to find solutions going forward, but we also need to acknowledge the past. All we need to do is to look at the case of Joyce Echequan in Quebec to see that racism in the healthcare system is still there. September 28, 2020, Joyce Echequan, an Atikamekw woman, recorded the racist mistreatment she received from hospital workers in Joliet, Quebec. She died of pulmonary edema shortly after she posted the footage online. Coroner Gehain Kamel concluded that Joyce's death was not of natural causes, but accidental because she did not receive the care to which she was entitled. Her death was the result of racism and prejudice. The coroner also asked the Quebec government to address systemic racism in its institutions. In a news conference held by Joyce's family a short time after, her husband Carol Dubay said, Joyce died because she was Indigenous. Teresa Edwards from the Legacy of Hope Foundation shared with us, there continues to be a deep mistrust of the medical and dental community because of the cruel and unethical procedures and practices conducted on Indigenous peoples within our lifetime that has impacted willingness to seek treatment, even for minor issues. Here's Angie. We hear stories of Indigenous people being left waiting in the emergency rooms for hours and hours and hours stories of Indigenous people not having the quality care that they deserve like everybody else. I'm from northern Saskatchewan, where the quality of care would even be less because we have a lack of resources. We don't have ambulances. Thank goodness for the STARS Air Ambulance because they have been able to go up north during times of crisis and emergencies. There aren't very many hospitals in northern Saskatchewan either. And so the quality of health care when they come down south is expected to be better, and sometimes it's not. Our province as a whole, the healthcare system, really needs to, to improve how they treat our Indigenous people. Apeksha Hindania works as a health promotion coordinator at Lung Sask. So over the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years, the incidence rate of tuberculosis in Saskatchewan have been stable. However, specific First Nations communities in Saskatchewan continue to be unequally burdened by this disease. 40% of the cases in Saskatchewan are in the north, but just 4% of the province's population actually live there. So the high burden of tuberculosis among some specific First Nations communities 
is really indicative of factors beyond that biomedical. I think there's a reason that tuberculosis is known as a social disease with a medical aspect. It really shows that there are systemic issues that are still going on today. It's still a very stigmatized disease. So when a person has to leave their home community for treatment, they may be stigmatized, but they also have to learn to navigate the complexities of our healthcare system while being away from home. You may be thinking about what to do with the histories you've heard. Interview participants shared some actions for individuals and organizations. This is Miranda Jimmy. I think we are benevolent racists in Canada, which means that it's covert, it's in our actions and in our systems. How that relates to, to healthcare is that it's again a way for us to pat ourselves on the back without getting into the nitty-gritty of how and why healthcare is the way it is. Yes, I have access to healthcare. I can go to a hospital and receive emergency medical treatment. How I look when I walk in the door will determine the kind of treatment I receive. If we're actually critically thinking about the systems we uphold, we're always going to be patting ourselves on the back instead of trying to be better. The practices that created segregated healthcare in Canada exist today. There is still a lack of access in many rural and remote communities, especially for First Nations and Inuit communities. The access to the types of care and how quickly you can access that care vary drastically compared to major white predominant communities in Canada. We know that people get treated differently in our systems that are supposed to be publicly funded and accessible to everyone. We know that safe drinking water is not available in every First Nations community. We know that there are houses filled with 18 people and that's the norm. We know that there is black mold in those houses that will never be fixed. When people think about this, people who say, I am I'm liberal, forward, progressive thinking, I am not a racist. I know that these problems exist. I'm aware. I've read the TRC report. I ask them to think about what are the systems in place today that 100 years from now your ancestors are going to look at and say, I can't believe they knew that was happening and they didn't do anything about it. Cindy Blackstock shared related advice. Caring is not enough. You have to do something. You don't have to worry. Uh, these solutions are already out there. So what you can do is, is actually look at the murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls' calls to justice. Look at the TRC's calls to action. Look at the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples and ask yourself, why is that Indian Act still around? Then invite your local member of parliament over to your school and ask them questions. What have you personally done, member, to implement this? And then what are you going to do to implement what remains? It's not that everyone has to be overwhelmed by this. That's part of the colonial project is to make people feel overwhelmed. The key is challenge yourself to learn something every week and then to write that down and to share that with your friends and have new conversations. Here's Kayla Johnson from the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation on the concept of micro-reconciliation. 
structural racism is embodied in our institutions and in our ideas such as the treatment of Indigenous peoples. The goal of micro-reconciliation is to transform our work environments by encouraging personal and collective investment in reconciliation. And this is done in three pieces. The first part is acknowledgement. We have to acknowledge Canada's colonial history and how institutions continue to fail Indigenous peoples today. Once we acknowledge the fact that structural racism is there, we can begin to address it by having these open discussions. Part of that is bearing witness to those who've called out institutionalized racism and beginning to question the status quo. Now, the process of witnessing is only possible if individuals feel empowered to ask those questions, to create those opportunities for a change or a shift in the way we see or do things. And the last piece is moral courage, and that's naming and speaking what we know to be true. An expectation of reconciliation is to facilitate a context where Indigenous peoples are heard, listened to and respected, and where Indigenous peoples are in roles to lead this discussion. Erin Kwan at Lungsask shared thoughts for healthcare providers related to the TRC's calls to action 22 and 23. As we work towards reconciliation, we have a responsibility to answer calls around inclusion and support and really promotion of Indigenous care by Indigenous professionals. One of the things we're able to do is ensure that we recognize that care needs to be provided in both a culturally sensitive way, but also in consideration of the communities that, that need it most. And we have a responsibility to help deliver that, whether that's through education of healthcare professionals or advocating for better access. One of the things I think we, we all have a responsibility to do is to socialize that and to talk about how are you meeting you know, a certain call or how, what is changing in your organization or within yourself? There's so much work to be done and we have an option to, to help grow that community of healthcare professionals and understanding of culturally sensitive care. How can you contribute to not recreating historical harms if you work in a profession related to education, healthcare, social work, or justice? If you're a student, how can you increase your awareness of Indigenous peoples' histories and Indigenous settler relations? If you are a public servant who thinks speaking up is futile, remember Dr. Bryce and his countless attempts to improve federal policy. If you're an archivist, can you reduce barriers for someone looking for a loved one's records? Learn more through additional clips and resources on our website, nationalcrimepod.ca. Thank you to everyone who made this podcast possible. The story of a National Crime Podcast is written and produced by me, Maya Foster-Sanchez, and presented by Knockabout Media. It is co-produced by Ryan Barnett with additional voices by Gabriel Miracle. This project has been made possible by the Government of Canada. If you're a residential school survivor or intergenerational survivor, you can access support through the National Indian Residential School Crisis Line at 1-866-925-4419. Mental health and crisis support is also available through Hope for Wellness at 1-855-242-3310. Our series advisors are Teresa Edwards, Kayla Johnston, and Erin Millions. 
This episode featured interviews with Miranda Jimmy, Aaron Millions, Ann Lindsay, Angie Morasti, Sheldon Krasowski, Kayla Johnston, Paul Hackett, Aaron Kwan, and Apeksha Hindania. Special thanks to Lindsay Gibson, Gabriel Miracle, and Caleb Ellison Dysart. For a list of sources used in this episode and to download the listening guide, visit knockaboutmedia.com. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.